This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome into another episode of Sorry Really, I am your host, Blythe Bramley, and on this show, we cover the attention economy, B2B marketing, and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And we got a good show for you today. I guess, you know, that that's kind of the same theme for each week. I never want to say we're going to have a bad show, but this week we got an especially good show because in the first segment, we are going to talk about a Twitter thread that was posted by a popcorn shipper on what he wished he knew before he started working with a 3PL. So that's going to be valuable insights for you brokers out there looking to get some tips on your cold outreach before, during, and after the sales process is complete. And then we are chatting with Chase Barber. He is the CEO of Edison Motors and of TikTok fame, close to 700,000 followers, or even more than 700,000 followers, I believe. And then finally, we are going to end the show with an interview with Locomation's CCO, Glenn Spangenberg. And I probably mispronounced that last name, so sorry about Apologies over to Glenn. Hopefully I pronounced it right, but um, that's the challenge of doing live TV whenever you uh, have names that are difficult to pronounce. I know firsthand having a very difficult name, how challenging that can be at times. But let's go ahead and dive into our first topic because let's talk about what a shipper wants from a 3PL. Now, many freight companies will spend a lot of resources, time, and money on an SEO strategy to try to figure out what shippers are searching for online. And while I think that that's not, in in my personal opinion, SEO is not a strategy that the majority of freight brokers should be focusing as a core strategy. Go check some of my LinkedIn posts. I posted a couple videos today on some myths and misconceptions and also tips for improving your SEO strategy. So it has some definitely some helpful information out there if you're looking to fine tune that strategy. But but one thing that we don't necessarily hear too often is on a public setting what a shipper wants from a 3PL. And so this popcorn manufacturer, they really, it, it's its a not a popcorn, yeah, a president over at Franklin's Popcorn. His name is Dave Strickland. He posted to Twitter late last week about what he wished he knew about working with 3PLs. Now let's run through, in case you're listening, let's run through a couple of these tweets because it was a thread full of insight and information that I think a lot of brokers will find extreme value in. And the first few tweets, he says... He finished his first year with a 3PL. It was an expensive process. And here are the things that he wished that he learned before going into the deal. That software matters a lot. Making sure there's no hiccups in the order flow is essential to sleeping well at night. Make sure they, the brokers, demo it and you talk to one another as well as your customers on the cart platform you're on. Now, you don't have to have alignment on, say, you don't have to have alignment on saving money as Dave he continues, but he said, when I told my warehouse team to get that container from X and bring it to Y, they knew my cost per unit and would be like, Dave, it's expensive if you do that. Let's rethink this. 
The 3PL just says no problem and they bill you whatever. So he's talking about his experience before using a 3PL where there was some cost conversations that were taking place whenever the, he had a, a shipment that needed to get from X to Y. And so how a 3PL would just accept it, just it, they're worried about moving the freight from point A to point B. They're not necessarily worried about the business owner or the shipper's cost. So that was another thing that he wished that the 3PL would have communicated to them as he was working through this process. Process. And then he says, it leads me to point number three, how they bill you matters. Is someone in your org going to have that Excel spreadsheet, Sherlock Holmes, to figure out charges? How are you tracking all that? Can you see the charges in real time or are they just invoiced monthly? So these are all of the different concerns that he had after signing on to work with a 3PL. So from the perspective of using this insight that's rarely posted, especially to a platform like Twitter, where we don't really see this kind of insight directly from a shipper, I have a couple of takeaways that I think that you guys will find valuable as you start building out your cold outreach or even your, your regular outreach of the conversational points that you should be covering. And you should be covering not only ahead of the process before a deal is made, but after the deal has been made, that ongoing communication, which from reading between the lines of, of his tweets, that seemed like that was the biggest gap and failure is that once he sort of signed on the dotted line to work with the 3PL, he kind of felt like he was just waiting in the wings and just ran charges would be popping up and he would have to factor in those charges after the fact, not before the fact. So let's talk about a few of those key takeaways. Growing shippers are used to running everything. I think that's kind of clear from that thread that he's used to running everything. You have to let them know what the entire process is up front of working with a 3PL. Even if you think they should know something, say it anyway. Let me make sure that that communication is actually is, is taking place instead of assuming that that shipper will know how this entire process works out, especially when it comes to billing, especially when it comes to tracking and visibility. And then let them know how the process works during a typical shipment or when, you know, stuff hits the fan. When stuff hits the fan, there's probably a, a different protocols that are taking place. They just want to know ahead of time because they're used to running everything. And so when they take that trust factor and they let someone else manage it, there's, you know, I could speak from like an entrepreneurial standpoint that you're used to running everything and you have to now trust somebody else that's going to do as good of a job, if not better than you will. So that establishing that trust factor is incredibly important. And it sounds like with at least Franklin's popcorn that this wasn't actually taking place and that this communication wasn't happening until after the fact of when he actually was asking, well, what the hell is going on with my shipment? And also what the hell is going on with all of this pricing? Being proactive, not just before the sale is complete or before that relationship is established with the new shipper, you should be communicating what happens during X, Y, and Z. And then also what happens during a crisis for X, Y, and Z, what the cost and implications are from that. Um, all of those little minute details, because like I said, shippers are used to running everything. So you need they need to be able to trust you that you are on top of it and that you're also communicating that to them. Now, business owners, my final takeaway, I'll give it to you, is uh, business owners like Dave want to handle the logistics part of the business, but they realize they need to trust others in order to help them grow more. You are supposed to set them up and help them free up their time so they can focus 
focused on where they're the most valuable. And so by knowing all of these different intricacies of how the, the process and charges and, and, and all of the minute details that may, they may not know, they may not be aware of, this was a really interesting insight into what you can be proactive about communicating with them. And what does that do? That establishes trust and knowledge that you're an expert in this and that they can trust you even with stuff hits the fan, that they're not going to be raked over the coals with a lot of different, you know, uh, overages and, and, and charges that they don't necessarily uh, plan for because they don't know that it exists. So being able to communicate that, like I said, ahead of time, before, during, and after the process of getting the deal is complete, then if you're be staying proactive and you're communicating what goes on, then you are doing much better than a lot of these 3PLs out here just by simply communicating your knowledge of what's going on in the industry and being proactive. I think that that was one of the bigger takeaways from reading through his thread and reading through some of the responses that he got from other shippers, especially growing shippers and companies who have been used to going direct to consumer and handling everything themselves. Now they're trusting a 3PL to handle it for them, but they still want to be in the constant communication loop. So honing in on those strategies, I think would help a lot of 3PLs, especially as you're doing some cold outreach. If you're speaking to some of these concerns that he's tweeting about, guarantee that other people are experiencing the same thing. And that could be a competitive advantage for you if you are communicating those things ahead of time. Now let's go into our next topic and our first guest of today's show from the 3PL sales advice on Twitter to a TikTok star with more than 700,000 followers. Let's go ahead and bring on our first guest, Chase Barber. Welcome in, Chase. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. Now, obviously, um, I think for, well, not obviously, but for a lot of folks, um, I, I first found out about you through TikTok and you, you made some funny, you know, driver posts and it was just like an immediate follow for me. I think you had like one that was like the final destination uh, logging video that I think was, was my first interaction um, with your content. And it was an immediate follow, but for folks who don't follow you yet on, on TikTok or any social media platform, can you kind of give us a background of, of your career in trucking and how you came to be CEO of Edison Motors. Oh, wow. That is a crazy story. Uh, so <laughs> my time in trucking, I started trucking quite a while ago. Before I went to university, I thought it was going to be a great job, get some experience. Loved it. Loved the job. Went to university, realized that I, I did relatively well. I got all straight A's. Top, I was in the top five of my class. And I even won a Bank of Canada competition. I was in economics. And winning a competition, you got a job offer at the Bank of Canada. And the starting wage was $50,000 a year. I made that in one summer as a university student, driving truck, moving drilling rigs in Alberta. I made 50 grand in a year driving someone else's truck. So me and the business partner, we said, screw it. You know what? Rather than take a job, he was an accountant. Why don't we go trucking? So we bought a 1969 Kenworth off an old boy, uh, Bob Murphy. We bought this truck in a field with a truck and trailer for $4,000. <laughs> we spent our last semester of university fixing up this old Kenworth. And we sent it off to work uh, hauling logs. And then we turned it into a low bed tractor. And we added on another truck. And we added on another truck. And yeah, we kind of just kept growing it as far as trucking goes. And that's when we started hauling generators, that kind of thing. And we realized like, hey, we could probably not only haul these generators, we could install them. 
we always had a big interest in like solar. So we're like, hey, let's do some solar. We'll install the generators. We'll handle everything as far as the trucking goes. And we started doing hybrid solar installs where we take a diesel generator, mix it with solar, some batteries. And that's kind of what gave us the idea for Edison Motors. We were up and we did one project for this tiny little community of 50 people, but they had a diesel generator running way up in the Yukon. And what we did is we put in a much smaller diesel generator. We went from 90 kilowatts down to 30. We hooked it to a battery bank, put a bunch of solar, and that battery did a peak loading. So you were able to reduce the fuel consumption by 30%. They ended up saving, I think it was $70,000 in the first year for a truck that, for a system that cost 90. So we're like, that's a hell of a payback. And then because we already had trucks and we restored classic trucks for fun, we started looking into it and be like, this all started like a year and a half ago in the background of me doing the math and my partner and figuring out, could we build a hybrid electric truck and do the same thing that we did for this community in one of our old trucks? And so, yeah, we were busy hauling logs, working away on it. And about four months ago, five months ago, I announced on my TikTok that we were doing Edison Motors and building an electric logging truck. And it kind of just took off from there. And so really the, the the catalyst for starting the company, Edison, was was really about this one small town saving money. And then that's what – did you have any experience, I guess, sort of um, building custom, you know, I guess, con, contraptions for a truck? Or, or was this sort of like new that you kind of knew, I, I guess – sort of the the layout of of the engine technology and all that stuff and then it was a matter of just brainstorming the different components that you could move from i guess diesel to electric power i don't even know if i'm explaining this right but it kind of feels like i am so correct me if i'm wrong on how where did you really i guess get the inspiration on how this could work was it really that small town it was that small town we did. It, it was literally it was a little tiny First Nations community reserve way up north. And yeah, it's. I started thinking about it on the drive home after doing it. And like, I'm not going to lie, that project did not go smoothly for us. That was the first time we did an in hybrid install. It was a disaster. It probably took us like four times to get it right going out, driving up to the Yukon to figure that thing out. But we got it. And then yeah, that was basically the thing. Driving home, my old, we were in that old 1969 Kenworth, driving home in this old 50, 60 year old truck. And I'm like, well, if we it worked for that tiny little community, why wouldn't it work for us? And so for, from that idea, now you you have, you know, sort of a company that's been born. You said you've been working on, on you know, launching this company for, for the past, you know, handful of months. Um, one of the things that I love about this, and we're actually showing a, a clip of one of your recent interviews on the screen right now, but one of the things that I love about your branding, because I'm always trying to pay attention to, you know, how people post on social media and what they include in social media, the hat that you're wearing says stealing Tesla's ideas. And for those who aren't, you know, history buffs, can you give us a breakdown on why this is a, you know, I guess sort of a funny like play on words? Okay. Yeah. So we named our company Edison Motors because Thomas Edison is accused of stealing Nikola Tesla's ideas. So Nikola Tesla had some brilliant ideas with uh, electricity. He worked for Edison. Edison took those ideas and capitalized on them. So obviously there's Tesla Motors, so we thought it would be funny to name our company Edison Motors because we were a little we thought it was a little bit funny and we also reserved that Tesla semi. That was 
five, six years ago that they announced the unveiling of that. We reserved that, paid the $25,000 during the launch. We're like, we need this. We want this. We want to see what the electric truck can do. We believe in the advantage of electric drives. Five, six years later, we just said, screw it. We'll build our own. <laughs> it's the entrepreneurial spirit just like right at work. And, and for folks who who may be new to, I guess, you know, we're going to have an interview later on in the show that, that talks about, you know, autonomous vehicles. But for folks who are, they know about semi-trucks, they know some of this emerging technology that, that's coming into the space. What is sort of, I guess, the, the, the pros and the cons of what you're building to what is currently trying to, to being, you know, attempted to be built on, you know, with some of these other, you know, larger companies that are focusing on the autonomous area? Um, I would imagine that, you know, it, with your company, there isn't much infrastructure change that needs to happen. Am I right in that assumption or am I just dead wrong? Yeah. So to explain our truck, we're doing diesel electric. So it's going to have a diesel generator powering a much smaller battery bank that then flows into the electric motors. The advantage of that is that you're running a 15 liter like X15 Cummins. You need that 600 horsepower to shove that truck off the line. But then once you're at cruising speed, you're really reducing it to like 200 horsepower, but you're still running a 15 liter engine. Now, electric is more reliable, it's more torquey, and it's just constant RPM. So for logging, we thought it made a heck of a lot more sense because you don't need two megawatts of batteries. Like the Tesla Semi, they came out and they said, you know, it can run for six hours pulling 80,000 pounds, but we need a truck that can run for 14 hours and we haul 140,000 pound loads of logs up here in the bush. So we need something that's a lot more skookum and like you do the math, that's two megawatts to two and a half megawatts of battery you would need. Not only is that going to weigh like 15,000 pounds, it's going to cost about $1 million to $1.5 million for that kind of battery bank. Some of them could even be up to $2 million. And then you got to plug it in. And then if you don't run a range, so we saw, it, well, the most simple way is to do it like a freight train does it. Just attach a generator behind a much smaller diesel motor use those batteries as peak load shaving. So those batteries, when they're full, they help give you that shove off the line. Then when you're cruising at speed, you know, you're only burning 150 kilowatt hours. The generator's 250. It'll build those battery banks back up. Plus, you can take advantage of the regen braking. Uh, motors, when they're coming downhill, that motor that's a motor, when you put a load on it, you can flow the power backwards, turn it into a generator. We're logging on the West Coast, so you're coming down load and you're going up the hill empty, so you can use that stored potential energy of the logs at the top of the hill to produce power for your batteries to get you to the mill and put it back. You shouldn't really have to run the generator that much. And so with this with this hybrid technology that that you've created is it really only applicable for you know heavy haul loads like logging trucks or is it can it be applicable to to other types of trucks out on the market? Oh, it, the, the vocational market, I think, is the most efficient one to have these diesel electric or electric vehicles. Gravel trucks, cement trucks, things that are doing in-city driving that need to stop and go off of lights a lot or, you know, they're off highway and they need that robustness. I'll be honest, the diesel electric doesn't make as much sense for the highway. It, it, it just, it doesn't. And a lot of companies are focusing on that. There's some gains, but what do you get? A 10% fuel mileage gain for the little bit extra cost of the running the generator kind of offsets itself. Because a highway truck, 
you're pulling 80,000 pounds on an interstate in the U.S., you get up to speed and you stay up at speed for two, three hours straight doing 60 mile an hour, there's no peak load savings, there's no real taking advantage of the regen, braking, the efficiency loss of going through a transmission and a drive shaft isn't huge. So what you're trying to save there isn't as big compared to all the gravel trucks, garbage trucks, cement trucks, <laughs> vac trucks, tons of places like service trucks. They need additional auxiliary equipment. They've got to run additional things. You know how quiet a vac truck would be rather than having a big hydraulic pump? You could just have electric motors. You got 480 volt, three phase power right there. You can run any additional electric attachment you want. I think that is the biggest place where these EVs and diesel electric hybrids should be, that heavy haul section. That's where you electric motors make a ton of torque, a metric ton of torque. Put it on a heavy haul, put it on gravel. But everyone wants to focus on the dry van hauling, and it's just it, it's not the most applicable thing. It's like buying, you know, a 40 horsepower chainsaw to do some limbing on your gardens. Why? Go out <laughs> falling with it. No, no, I think that's a brilliant breakdown. And it sort of leads me to my next question, because when I was following this journey, you guys first started out that you just wanted to make almost a kit that can be interchangeable between, you know, whether a truck is old or whether a truck is new. And I thought that that was really interesting because we the life cycle of even, you know, uh, a lot of carriers, especially in the U.S., they're having to buy new trucks every three years just in order to attract new drivers to, to to come to their company. Now with your solution, and, and I, I'm not sure if you're actually still, you know, pursuing this model, but it was supposed to be an interchangeable engine that you switched out from some of the older model trucks with this hybrid model that you're talking about. Is that still in the works for you or have you moved on to, you know, no, we actually need to, to, to make an actual truck with this technology? No, no, we want to do retrofit kits. That's where we want to start with. We needed to come up with our own design to do the modeling so there was no intellectual property infringement, but we're going to start making retrofits because, you know, as a trucking company ourselves, we looked at our 60-year-old trucks. You know, I've had that truck for six years, and in total, I put $3,000 worth of parts into maintaining that old girl. Those old girls just work. And I feel like truck consumers, mainly owner-operators or small businesses, are different than that consumer mindset. You don't need the newest flashy model. Look at a long-nosed Peterbilt, long-nosed Kenworth. They have kept their style for the last 50 years. A truck, that W900 that you were showing from the 60s looks about the same as a W900 now. So why throw out an old truck when you can just upgrade the motor, upgrade it to a more efficient thing, and keep those old girls running? Like, as far as a business goes, why are you spending 250,000 logging trucks now or like 400,000 Canadian? Why spend 400 grand every four or five years when, you know, 100 grand, 120 grand we're estimating is a cost to just do a full retrofit and keep that old girl working? Plus, diesel generators, electric motors last forever. You might have to spend 30 grand in batteries every, I don't know, five to seven years. That's a cost of doing a rebuild, but. Other than that, it should last for 20, 30 years. And that's how a truck should be. It's an asset for your business. Buy it. Keep it as long as you can. You know, when we bought that old 69, we bought it off a guy named Bob Murphy. He bought that 69 truck when he was 23 years old back in 1969. And he drove that truck every day till he retired at 67 years old before we got it. Wow. 
what is the ROI on a truck? If you buy a truck for $20,000 in 1969 and keep it all the way up until 2014, what's the ROI on that? It's like, why replace it when you can just keep rebuilding that? Especially when you talk about the ROI, not just from buying a new truck, but also I would imagine with, with gas prices just being outrageous, you have the this additional savings in, in, in diesel costs. Why do you think that this hasn't been invented yet or hasn't come to the mainstream yet? Is it really, you know, just, just folks just doing what's easy and, and, you know, we're buying new instead of rebuilding what currently is on the market. Why, why hasn't a hybrid technology like what you're doing uh, come to the market sooner? I don't know. That's the one thing that scared us when we're starting. We're like, everything makes so much sense. This is clearly one of the best ways to go. Why hasn't anyone done it? And then we're honestly, we're kind of scared about that, that, nobody has done it yet like it makes sense somebody should have done it i read an article packard and freightliner both came out with it and they analyzed the hybrid system and they said a hybrid wasn't the best idea because the same reasons i said their entire article that this article that came out looked at the highway haul application and i think these big truck manufacturers when they're looking at trucks they're looking at selling to like, you know, the big Swift, the big mega carrier companies that are going to buy 7,000, 8,000 trucks per order. They're designed, they want to design a truck for them. There's, you know, there's only 3,500, I think, logging trucks in BC for the application we're going under. Packard Kenworth doesn't care about 3,500 trucks when there's companies in the U.S. that place bigger orders than that per year. And that's across all our logging companies. But for us, being a startup company, 3500 is a huge market for retrofits in a startup company in one small area. So for us, it made sense. And I think it might just might not have. Plus, we were thinking the engineering, if you were to do it with a team of engineers at one of these big trucking companies, they would have 15, 20 engineers who would have meetings upon meetings that discuss the meetings they were going to have. It would be so needlessly overly complicated that the entire system, when it rolled off the line, would be $600,000. Now, we we built our prototype here for $200,000 because that's all the money we had. That was our budget. So we know that our kit costs under $2,000 because that's all the money we had. You look at Hylian or some of the other competitors, and they're like, oh, yeah, our truck's going to be about four or $500,000. Some of them were like $600,000 when they came out with the fancy LNG, computer-controlled, automated trucks. It's like it's got so many features in this thing that you're paying so much money for that it's just you're driving up the price insane. And it's just, I don't know, I think doing it simple with hillbilly engineering – is kind of the way to do it. I mean, that being said, since we came out, we got like 40, 50 guys working on this project, but we're keeping it simple. <laughs> well, it also feels like you're you're addressing environmental concerns. You're addressing budgetary concerns, especially for the owner operators out there who, who may be interested in just keeping their truck that they've had and they probably just love to death for, for years and years and being able to to keep that truck while also being able to save on fuel costs and and make their, you know, the truck a little bit more environmentally friendly without the huge cost investment. So I think you're solving a lot of problems that maybe, you know, these bigger companies just are so laser, 
laser focused on on other aspects of it. Um, but one way that you're using to not, I mean, you're using several ways to, to spread awareness, but one of the biggest ways that you're getting awareness to these issues is, is through your TikTok account. Can you walk us through a little bit about, you know, why you chose to get started on TikTok and why that was the platform of choice? Oh, that was because a couple of the guys I was logging with had TikToks, and they were his old Shane, and Shane loved to take videos of his truck and other truckers going, and they're like, oh, Shane's Mr. TikTok, he's making a TikTok again, and like, you know, I'm like, I better download TikTok and see what the hell Shane's posting about me, <laughs> see these trucks, and I started following Shane, and then I thought, ah, oh, screw it, I can make a few videos, and I have no idea how that took off that way because i mean it's yeah 730,000 plus another 100,000 for the edison motors tiktok like we're at 850 odd thousand or so now and it's like i don't no idea no idea i just started making jokes and i have no suggestions i i can't tell you what does well and doesn't do well on tiktok because i'll post a video i'm like okay this is a great video it's informative and you're like oh yeah 20,000 views and you're like okay you're like, hey, this is how you poop in the woods, guys, when you're logging. Four million views, it's a hit. Because <laughs> that was absolutely going to be my next question is, do you have a posting strategy? Or is it sort of just, um, I guess, sort of like the, the Gary Vee model of document, don't create. Don't spend too much time thinking about a video. Just document what you're doing in your everyday life. That's Is that sort of the ethos of what you guys uh, post with your business account and your personal account? Yeah, that's exactly what we post. We post what we're doing, what's going on in the life. If I if I have an idea, I'll make a TikTok. If I don't have an idea, it might there's times where there'll be a week or week and a half I don't make any TikToks and then all of a sudden I'll make four the next day because I got great ideas all at once. It's keep it simple. <laughs> that's my whole motto. <laughs> Now, one thing that I do love about your TikTok is because this was a little strategic, even though you don't think it is, I do think it is, is that you had a design contest for um, the, the the truck that you're looking to outfit with the new hybrid technology. Can, can you talk us through a little bit about what went into this contest and where? how did you sort of, I guess, sort through the good ideas versus the bad ideas? Well, we the main aim of the contest is we we're working with another bigger company that makes electric motors and... Uh, so they make some of the electric motors for like Caterpillar and that. And like we're sitting there like it'd be nice to do 3D models to model all this, where everything would go in a truck. And then we realized like, hey, if we use Kenworth, we'll infringe on their intellectual property. And then they might say like, hey, you can't design a truck using our truck. That's not right. So we're like, OK, we need to have our own design contest. Fair enough. So or our own truck design. And I thought, well. I'm tired of these companies making ugly electric trucks. Every time they come out and design their own truck, it looks ugly. And all the trucking community always makes fun of it. So I said, if the trucking community always makes fun of every electric truck, why don't we just ask the trucking community what they want to see in an electric truck? Let them decide. That way, if they're like, hey, we think it's ugly, it's like, well, you designed it. It's like a Subway <laughs> sandwich. If you complain about a Subway sandwich, it's like, well, you made it. You can't complain about it. And so from this, this design contest, like you're actually, you actually picked one of the designs that was all voted on. You had, you know, different numbers by each truck design, and then people voted by liking the comments. Now, what, where does that, I guess, sort of the, the truck design process stand at this current moment? Is it currently in the works? Like, how does that even work? Like to design a new truck? Oh, um, so yeah, we're basically, we've got we the winning design one. We had a look at it. We got like four or five engineers now that work for us, and they had a look to see where places could go. We had to make a few changes. 
couple little aerodynamics, but yeah, we've got that truck in 3D rendering now. We're making a few little changes and we're hoping in the next three weeks, all the parts and components will be in there that I can show everybody how it all works, how it all fits together. And, and then plus, then we can mod it into like American Truck Simulator so everyone can go out and drive the truck. And we'll probably make prototype two, the truck design that we made ourselves. Cause honestly, we were thinking if we're gonna build a truck right from brand new, the frame rails up, we might as well make the design ourselves. And we made this design so simple that I went to a body fabricator and it's going to be $18,500 to make the entire body. The hood alone on a new W900 is about $16,000 for the hood. I can make the whole body hood, fenders, and cab for eighteen five dollars because it's a simple design and we went back to basics. Hmm. And so you've got the new truck in in the design process. You've you've developed the, this hybrid motor that that could help you know with a lot of different owner operators out there, especially up in Canada for 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 logging. What does sort of I guess the the one year outlook look like for for you guys in Edison Motors? The one year outlook. Okay, well this summer we're hoping to have our prototype version one. That's that old nineteen sixty two Kenworth we started on. Uh, we're going to test that out, see what breaks, see what works, see what doesn't work. And then we're going to, because realistically, the company we're working with for the actual electric motors, because we're just ripping apart a used Tesla now. <laughs> we're literally stealing a <laughs> Tesla motor out of a wrecked Tesla, stealing Tesla's idea. But once we get a bigger motor in there that's properly sized from the company we're going to go with for the retrofit kits, they said their lead time right now on their motors is about 54 weeks. So... We're looking at figuring that out in the next month or two, and then we're not going to be able to see these motors for like a year. So we're going to test the prototype. In the meantime, we're going to build everything up there where it's going to mount, how we're going to mount everything in that Edison version of the truck. And then we're hoping that within a, about a year, year and a half, we'll have the full version ready to go, test that out for four or five months, and then start the retrofit kit summer of 2024 to fall 2024. Okay, it's 2022, that, three, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's been incredible to to watch this journey. And, and for folks who want to start watching your journey, where can they find more of your work? Uh, TikTok under Chase Barber. Perfect. Not we Chris Barber. Oh, my TikTok's been throttled like crazy. Chris Barber was one of the leaders of the truck convoy who was on TikTok. And I'm Chase Barber. People keep reporting my videos. I'm like, because they're mad about the truck convoy. I'm like, I'm not that. That's Chris Barber. I'm Chase Barber. Different Barbers. Totally. I'm the guy right, like Totally different truckers. <laughs> Follow the real yeah, or, Chase Barber uh, over on TikTok and then edisonmotors.ca. Chase, thank you so much. This was a lot of fun and, and excited to continue to watch your journey. Right on. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Great conversation. And, and as we quite sort of close out with this week's show, I did want to uh, pay special note to the upcoming future of supply chain. The March Madness tickets for Freight Waves are on sale right now. Make sure you go to the website in order to learn more about the awesome lineup agenda that's coming soon. And as I sort of, you know, get to this last part of the show, I did want to play one more interview that we have from Manifest that happened in January, which sort of, you know, goes to the, I guess, you know, sort of the content generation journey of, of all the content that we got but i hope you guys enjoy this interview with glenn spangenberg he is the chief commercial officer over at locomation thank you guys
and welcome into another episode of Cyberly Hits the Road. We are still live here at Manifest the Future of Logistics, and I am joined by Glenn of Locomation, not Locomotion, Locomation, because your spell check will deceive you. All right, Glenn, give us a little bit of background about you and how you got started in, in autonomous vehicles. You bet. I grew up in the trucking industry. I actually earned the truck transport merit badge as a Boy Scout back in 1973. Fell in love with the industry and have always been on the tech side of it, making markets. So really highly advanced technologies at, in their time. So this includes like the ComCheck and the ComCheck card and ComData and payroll systems and that sort of thing. Fast forwards into pay at the pump, fast forwards into email to and from the cab of the truck, fast forwards into tracking technologies at Qualcomm and so forth and ended up in the whole scheme of things looking at and understanding the future of the truck itself. And so that's really kind of how I, the genesis of where I got started in looking at autonomy and there's more to that story as well. Sure, go, go ahead and expand on that because yeah. I, I feel like that, that's a good, you know, sort of starting off point of, because obviously we have one of your trucks here on, on the show floor. A beautiful um, one. So, so tell us a little bit about this truck and, and, and how you guys sort of how came, came together. Be, yeah, how yeah. it came together. You bet. So the, it, and it, I'm using these fast forwards because the evolution of technology and trucking is sort of like that. It all didn't hit the showroom floor at the same time. There's these progressions. Uh, in 2012, I was in the future truck committee uh, at the truck, uh, the TMC, and people were saying, hey, we're going to have driver out, autonomous trucks, and that sort of thing. And I said, I, stop, hard stop. It's not going to happen like that. Number one, we need all the drivers we can keep in the industry, and we don't want to scare them away talking about that level of autonomy. And number two, the tech actually won't be here when you think it will be. And I was challenged at that point to you know, come up with a better solution. And my better solution was look into the future of that world, the autonomous truck world, identify technology that we could actually pull forward to what I called today. And that turned out to be 2013 then, when I came back and said, well, for example, we're going to need this level of camera technology. You could actually use that today to eliminate blind spots around the truck. And that's where I conceptualized in 2013 the first mirrorless truck wow. and, and put that out there. Fast forward, got an opportunity to have some conversations with Peloton had some concerns about you know, the follower driver for a number of different reasons. The market already fully understands that anyway. But when I heard about sort of this fusion between the capabilities of the technology, so I was enamored by the mirrorless truck, but I was really more enamored by that future that was gonna be able to use that, uh, but also find a way to marry the driver, the professional truck driver into the story that turned out to be Locomation. So we, I had an investor friend uh, who introduced me to Locomation's investor, and then it turned into, let's see if we can make a market. And we absolutely have done a fantastic job of making the market. And by the way, many thanks to Freightways for your help in, in doing that. Well, we appreciate it. I mean, obviously, the, the, they're the leader, I guess, as far as like media coverage within the space. And so uh, always looking to, to find you know more insights and more information. And you talk about sort of the, the evolution of the technology. And one of those things is this mirror right here. Can you break down of what exactly this is? Because it looks very expensive. <laughs> it is. It's, it's expensive, but it's affordable. Uh, and it is quite fascinating. The type of visibility you need for an autonomous truck really fits quite well with the way the mirrors work today. The mirrors are designed to get out far enough to where you can see, not too far, so just enough. Uh, so it turned out really to be the perfect place to begin mounting the, the sensor pods. If you look around, you can see as well that there are others in the industry doing level four technology saying, wait a minute, why aren't we putting our sensors in the mirror pod like locomation is? Uh, well, they won't really be able to do it like we are because we've got this patented, uh, a number of different patents that are related to this, but the idea was 
that if you could build in your LiDAR, if you could build in your cameras and have the, the, you know, the greatest field of view, because that's what it's all about, and build in the redundancy, left and right side, that you'd have a big hit in terms of your ability to deploy at scale, really with the right sort of technology at the right time. And really that's what this Miripod does. And so with the Miripod, you mentioned LiDAR, and then you also have a, a graphic, which we'll play on the screen as well, uh, but all of this different tracking technology to show what the camera shows and all the different variables, how does the, I mean, it might sound like a dumb question, but how does the, I guess, the system know what it's tracking? Is that a dumb question? That's know. not, that, that's actually, well, what you're asking is, can you tell me about the secret sauce? Oh, sure. Right, so the secret sauce is a very complicated world of robotics and, and, and autonomous vehicles. Our founders actually came out of Carnegie Mellon University's National Robotics and Engineering Center. They are extremely smart people. In fact, Dr. Al Kelly, one of the co-founders of Locomation, wrote the book on robotics, the math and the science and the modeling around, you know, how robots function. And so, a lot of expertise in that market space. I will tell you, one of the things that they discover in the scientific world is the more they learn about autonomous trucks, the more they realize they don't know. Mm -hmm. And that's why we keep seeing these shifting date frames and you know, they think we're gonna get there by 2016. That didn't happen by 2018, that didn't happen. We're now in 2022 and it's still somewhere out in front of us. It's because it's an extremely complicated world that we live in that when you think you've seen it all, the next hour, you're blown away away by what you what, what what you need to know, and that's the new thing. So, where is sort of the the, the implement, implementation plan? When it, is it is it the the first mile? Is it the, the the long haul? Is it the final mile? Where where does locomation fit in? Locomation fits into the middle mile. Mm -hmm. Now, when it really comes right down to it, locomation as a solution fits in from end to end. So when the load is first tendered, that's when we actually get involved. We look at the planning details in the load, determine how we can pair up two loads at one time, because part of our value proposition is we'll double up the amount of freight that the clients we serve get from the shipper marketplace. So we actually look at it from the origination of the load tender all the way through the delivery of the load. For the autonomous vehicle itself, that piece goes into the middle mile. Hmm. And by looking at it through the lens of freight planning from end to end, we actually have the ability to determine what sorts of autonomy you could actually deploy in various scenarios like the local delivery, in addition to the line haul. And so is it, is it only, I say only, you know, that, that's sort of a, you know, I guess a euphemism, but <laughs> is it just, are you using this technology on big semi-trucks or are you using it maybe in smaller delivery vehicles or is it really just, that's the, the business model right now or the, the semi-trucks middle mile? Bingo. Bingo. Just because the simplicity of going from one node on the interstate to another node on the interstate, you get to push out a lot of the complexities that come with a local activity uh, or other more complicated scenarios. In our particular case, we've designed 68 what we call an autonomous relay network segment, about 500 miles average length of haul each, designed to get the middle mile to maximum utilization. When you start driving up the middle mile to get the best utilization out of the assets, that's where you really start to make a lot of money. So we're building that today and actually giving our customers the ability to take advantage of that in terms of how much freight they get out of the shipper marketplace. And the shippers are anteing in because our solution, being certified by Boundless, they can, the shipper can now boast that their plan, their five-year plan, includes Wilson Logistics, PGT Trucking, and so forth to drive down the greenhouse gas emissions that they're doing by the deployment of the technology. So it's really kind of end-to-end, -end, how's the network layout, 
where does the truck go, and then who does what, when, where, why, how, with whom to make sure that truck is ready to haul freight autonomously. Because there's a lot that goes into that, very complex. So, so what goes all in, in I guess, sort of the, the, the too long didn't read, or, or too long didn't watch, maybe. For <laughs> what, what sort of goes into sort of the route planning? Are, are these trucks actually making deliveries right now? So they're not making deliveries right now because they're all in development. Ours, theirs, everybody's is, right. and then we'll have to all go into this testing phase because we self-certify that it is safe enough to actually go into commercial operation. That's for the AV trucks. Locomation is actually working with the clients now to re-engineer the supply chain for autonomy. Because when the trucks are ready, they you can't just go, okay, show up and, you know, hey, you're ready to go to work, go to work. <laughs> it just doesn't work like that. Uh, it, you have to determine who gets the tractor to the trailer or how do you get the trailer to the tractor and where's the tractor stationed so that somebody can get in, do the inspection, start the motor and then leave and then let the truck be the autonomous follower that it is. So a lot of moving parts uh, in the supply chain that starts with, for example, when the load tender comes in, how is it assigned? Can we shift it one day forward, one day backward in order to link it up with another load? Uh, and then you go from there and say, okay, so it, when will the load actually be ready? Who's going to move the trailer there? Because now you've got an autonomous truck in that, uh, in that scenario. Uh, who's going to move the tractor underneath the, you know, the trailer? That's not going to be ready you know, as soon as we'd like it to be, so that has to be done. You mentioned earlier about the relationship um, with, with your drivers. So how does it, I, I know a lot of drivers are, are fearful about, you know, the, I guess sort of a lot of people, you know, who work in maybe in warehousing and in a bunch of different roles that the robots are going to take our jobs, even in marketing, uh, they are worried about robots taking our job too. So how do you sort of, uh, I guess, pitch that, the evolution of the driver role? Absolutely. So our tagline is human guided autonomy. So that is who we are, locomation, human guided autonomy. And the the reason why we use that as a tagline is because the driver is essential in the movement of freight in the foreseeable future. They'll have a role. Meet and greet the customer, do the pre-trip inspection, and then that story goes on and on. But then they get to the point on the interstate where they go, oh, now's when I wish I could put it in automatic and, and then, you know. So that's part of the storyline that the machine is yours, not vice versa. Mm. The other part of it is you get more miles because while the truck is rolling, you're back in the sleeper berth, off-duty, not driving, so you're preserving your hours. You know that the average utilization of the hours of service, 11-hour drive time, 10 and a half hours when you bake in the 30-minute rest break, that's mandatory, but right now the average is seven to seven and a half hours per day of utilization. The rest of the time, everything sits idle, wow. truck and the driver. So if you just simply were to increase the amount of time that you have available to drive, so that's really the first storyline that we tell to the driver. You're a essential to having this machine perform to that level. This machine is not capable necessarily of performing to that level today. You know, we need the driver in the mix of that conversation. And the other part is they, they, they'll own it, so they're going to get comfortable with it. Just like they do today when they shouldn't. Maybe they sneak away from the steering wheel while it's in, you know, cruise control and they grab that cup of coffee sure. that they forgot or whatever. Uh, so we know from human nature that they will get comfortable. We have. That's how we got into cars. That's how we got onto motorcycles. That's how we got onto horses, frankly, too. Was, oh, I'm scared. You know, what if it kicks me? All right, you got to deal with all of those. We just think that that's a natural evolution that comes alongside the technology availability, provided that the technology availability brings the economic value that is attractive enough for me to say, I'm going to take that risk because if that really does work like that, it's game on. It sounds like an incredible sort of, I guess, 
an addition to or a benefit to becoming a truck driver then because you're, you're able to embrace the tech you're able to you know get more back of the time that you really want and spend more time making money and spend less time you know sort of dealing I guess with the BS that, that goes on with the rest of the industry. That's exactly right you know we, we get the, the question constantly you know well what if the drivers revolt uh, you know what if they just don't want to do that well the truth of the matter is probably half of the driver population is going to immediately say here's the Heisman you're not coming this way the other half will be some skeptical but willing some that are willing but still maybe things have to be resolved and some who are saying count me in hmm. and so pick me to do your test pick me to do your you know your first deployment pick me to be and those drivers exist and if you were to say well it's only 10 percent of the population of drivers that's still a you know depending on the market you're looking at 50 to 150,000 drivers who literally are saying that they're ready right now to and I feel like Take it would be such a it. great recruiting aspect too for a lot of these different carriers to say like we have these kind of trucks come work for us and then that's almost a, it, it helps solve that retention and the recruiting issue that has plagued the industry for as far back as we can remember. Absolutely. One of the clients we serve is PGT Trucking and Greg Troyan is using this in conversations with the whole driver community in general but obviously his drivers as well to say we're taking ownership of the deployment of autonomous technology in a way that makes you extremely valuable and our particular view is that as we look at a professional truck driver and then we look at a professional autonomous truck operator you've got two different skill sets and therefore we think that the autonomous vehicle operator is going to be more of a skilled driver set whereas you know the Department of Labor can't get past claiming that a truck driver is an unskilled driver which I just grates my teeth every time I, I say that, but it's the fact. Mm -hmm. But the truth is, is that this level of operators become a, a, a more high-value driver, uh, more valued in terms of not just their skill, but their ability actually to help lift the implementation to a point where it's truly successful. And so you have the you have the patented technology, you have the lidar, you have all of that, the, all of the tech side of things, and then you also are involving the drivers as far as their evolution of their roles and their their duties and their expectations. What does the, the near future look like for for, for locomation? What, what are you guys working on for the maybe for the rest of this year? Absolutely. So for the remainder of this year, we're focused on really kind of two swim lanes. One is the autonomous relay network and what it takes to actually implement that day in and day out at a carrier. Those are the systems, the tools, the APIs, the integration that make the systems work correctly so that it's planning these loads for two load convoys. The other part is the development and testing of the actual AV trucks uh, and their ability to pass certain gate checks of feature capabilities. So we have these feature set releases. Within the, each feature set release, we've said we're going to accomplish these things. And then the next feature set release and we, That's a product roadmap. It's a product. Exactly awesome. right. So it's phase one of the, well, I wouldn't say that, but it's the, the feature set, you know, that we'll be in. It's going to be multiple and plural throughout this year, but that's that's what we're working on. These trucks won't hit the road commercially uh, in, the, in the really near future, but the fact of the matter is, is if you do what we're thinking we're going to do, and that's the autonomous follower, we believe that we're going to get to market sooner rather than later, much faster than any of the fully driver out solo autonomous trucks will be there. They've got a lot that they've got to prove. We've got less to prove because we've got a human driver leading the convoy and an autonomous follower who's hauling freight for money. And so the economics are there, the value is there. Now it's just the technology being proven over time, and that's what we're focused on this so, year. So who 
actually approves the, 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 the platform and the program and, and all the different initiatives that, that you're, is it the government? Is it some kind of regulating nope. body? No, nope, it's not. So we have to comply with the regulatory bodies and the legislative uh, uh, the laws of the land, and by the way, that's at a state level right now, not at a federal level. So it actually makes it easier for us because we know what states we're going to deploy in soon, which states we're going to deploy in later, so we actually don't have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. But within the construct of the way the federal government looks at this, their guidance, AB 2.0, 3.0, 4.0, which would, by the way was authored by Finch Fulton, leading a group from the US DOT. Finch is our vice president of regulatory and strategy, and uh, so he's got real good clear insight into sort of how to navigate you know some of these uh, you know treacherous waters the political waters that uh, you have to absolutely you know, to unfortunately play to it, it is what it is uh, so you know having that focus and having you know the, the 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 foresight to be able to see those things it also adds a bit of work that needs to be done you know so uh, Key focus. And I'm, you got a lot on your plate. A lot on the plate, but it's going to be worth it, absolutely. Absolutely. All right, yeah. Glenn, where, where can folks follow more of your work and, and, and Locomation? Yeah, locomation.ai. And I realize, I, I don't know if you're going to be editing this. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> So, but anyway, to answer the question about who's making these decisions, it's actually locomation. So when it comes time to say, we're ready at this level and this level and this level, it is a self-certification of the manufacturer. Oh, okay. So is there any kind of, I guess, danger with being, or, or I guess the perception of being the person who says, okay, well now we're going to approve this technology. Right. But uh, it sounds like you guys are obviously taking the, the, the proper steps and involving drivers, but I imagine that that's probably going to be an opinion of others to maybe say like, oh, well you can't you know, be the person who approves and also, how, how do you, I guess, navigate those waters? Yeah, you bet. So the federal government actually is sort of, you know, catching up with every step that's made. So as a as a company like Locomation makes a claim that we've just signed 1,120 units with Wilson Logistics or 1,000 units with PGT, the USDOT perks up and says, can we talk to you, Locomation? How ready are you really? So then we go and we lay it out. It's not like they're trying to put a stop to anything, but they're trying to figure out, are they still ahead sure. of the game in terms of saying, okay, I believe you when you say you're ready to go because you actually went through these gate checks. And there's a lot of you know, ways that that's double checked and verified and blind certified and that sort of thing. So a lot of good checks and balances around, are you really ready? You know, I know you say you are, but did you check this, this, and this? Sure. So all of that takes place, but really it comes down to each one of these autonomous vehicle uh, providers setting out their case, proving that they met the case, mm -hmm. uh, and then of course you still have public opinion that weighs in and government opinion that still weighs in based on public opinions, And but that's going to be the process sure. and, and that's how we uh, believe that we need to go to it's make the market. I feel like for, for a lot of the regulating bodies, for, for the public as well, and then continuing that process of, of, of letting people know that, hey, these things are safe, and letting the drivers know that, hey, these things aren't going to take Exactly time. right, yeah. And at some point, we'll be able to say, and look at the accident rate of a machine compared with the accident rate of a human. The machine can see all around it all the time. Concurrently, it sees if it's got a bullet coming in this way and a car flying in this way, concurrently. Uh, and can track each one and you know uh, react appropriately. The human doesn't really do that. So our job ultimately is a society to reduce the amount of traffic fatalities that we have involving heavy duty trucks. That is the fault of the heavy, heavy duty trucks, right? It, you can't help if a yeah. four wheeler nails the truck, True. but uh, but otherwise our job is to really make it safer and less deaths on, on the nation's highways. And we're all pulling for that. So if we can prove we can do that, you know, at some point we've got to be able to look at it through a sober lens and say, we're really there. It's a step function reduction in deaths. It's not zero, 
it'd, it'd be great if it were zero, but let's just be real. But it's half of what it was in this, you know, in this group. And it's double what it is in this group because you've got humans in the loop of it. You know, at some point we're going to get to a point where we say everyone has to shift because it's worth, you know, the cost benefit is worth it. Bingo. So, all right. Well, thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, Where where can folks connect more with you? I know you mentioned the website, locomation.ai. What about you personally? Where can folks follow more of your work and updates for the industry? Yeah, absolutely. I'm Glenn at locomation.ai and Glenn is with the Y, G-L-Y-N-N. And I'll also say this, that uh, on my own personal website at Spangler Partners, we have Locomation listed there. Uh, and if it's easy to remember, just say mymirrorlesstruckstory.com. I know it's a lot, but it, hopefully it's yeah. going to stick in the mind. But if you want to you want to find a way to reach me, mymirrorlesstruckstory.com, and you'll be able to punch through to, to Locomation or read some other stuff uh, out there. And of course, I'm on LinkedIn too. Absolutely. Well, perfect. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. It's great being interviewed by y'all. Yeah, absolutely.